0: Good morning. Well, welcome if you're new with us at Community Church. uh, It's good to have you here. Uh, We like to change things uh, around a lot, and so you're in the round. Some of you are pretty bitter because I've moved your seat. I'm sorry. We've changed the ritual. Uh, You'll see why even we're in the round this morning. But man, I just love uh, singing and just doing that in the round, just to respond to what the words are in the lyrics, but also just to see uh, others worship God that way. It's powerful. Hey, this morning we are continuing a series uh, in the book of John. So if you don't have a Bible this morning and you'd like one, because we're going to be in John chapter 9, raise your hand. Uh, There will be some people to pass out some Bibles. Uh, So just keep your hand high if you want a Bible. Uh, We're going to use that this morning, I promise. Uh, We'll eventually get there. Uh, Raise your hand high if you need a Bible, and they'll just get them to you. John chapter 9. Uh, We have been uh, reading through this Gospel uh, since this summer. We've said 60 days through the Gospel of John. I think we're about 30 days, almost 30 days in. And I want to just give you context this morning before we dive into this idea of what John's going to be talking about in chapter 9. I think it's important that we understand a few things. Now John uh, is really big on this, this concept of seeing. And understanding, in fact, we're going to hear this morning, he'll talk a lot about this idea of blindness, but not necessarily physical blindness, even though there will be a healing in this chapter. It's going to more refer to a spiritual blindness. Now not' know about you, but when I hit uh, this last year, about fo- I'm 49, I'm going all of a sudden something changed. My Bible print got smaller. Um, my iPhone is now not as cool because the font is way too small. And uh, so I had to get a pair of glasses. And vision for us is really important, isn't it? I mean, obviously for the DMV, that's a big thing. We would hope that all of you could see when you're on the road. Uh, but vision is very important. Have you ever been in the mall? Remember years ago, they used to have those, those like psychedelic pictures. You remember those? They'd be in certain stores, and you'd be staring at them, and you'd be trying to see the picture underneath all the mess, right? And you'd be staring there. They'd say, go cross-eyed to do whatever, and it would like hurting. you get a headache. And then some kid or somebody walks up and goes, oh, I see it. It's this. And it's like, whatever. You're lying. You don't see it. It frustrated you because someone saw something that you were not able to see. It's photos like this that are all throughout the Internet when you see these photo illusions where you could see one of two things or maybe many things. It's this idea that John is starting to talk about that as we might think we have vision or a clarity on things, you might not be seeing exactly what God is wanting you to see. This is John's theme throughout the whole of the Gospel of John. We know this phrase by what? Seeing is believing. Let me see it, and then I'll believe. When really John is saying, no, no, in the kingdom of God, as he has defined it, first believing comes, and then clarity. Now, we've seen this in the first eight chapters. Jesus is going to be at the woman in the well. Remember that? And he's going to talk to her about a thirst and a water that brings living life. A full life. She'll never thirst again. He's looking for belief first, and then the clarity In seeing what he's talking about. In the kingdom of God, it takes faith. I have talked to many people over the years, but even more recent, especially here in the city of Green Bay, where there is a cloud of heavy religious thinking, where religion and tradition become king. And people have this sense of they don't see it, but they think they're just supposed to do it. And yet, the Scriptures teach very clearly that there needs to be a belief. A heartfelt relationship and belief. A leaping. And then you see it. But our world is very different today, isn't it? Show me. Show me. Show me. I was talking to someone who just said, well, I believe Jesus was a good guy. I believe He probably did some good things, but could it all really be true? Could could it all be legitimate what's in the Scripture? I'm not sure if I'm buying all that. And, and John is saying, listen, you need to believe and understand, as we said last week, make the declaration that Jesus is who He says He is, and He did what He set out to do. And so this morning, we continue this theme that John is saying, that believing is seeing. Now vision is important for us, and uh, Jesus is going to address one of the big issues of blindness, spiritual blindness in this culture at that point, and then he's going to go after this idea of the Sabbath. Now, many of you don't really quite understand, how many people are old enough to remember blue laws on Sundays? It's like exposing your age. Just a few. There's only a few older of us in there. I remember them, okay? I'll be honest in the room. Blue laws were basically that Sundays, there weren't allowed to be businesses open, right? Our country has changed, obviously, and so blue laws barely exist, if at all, anymore. Blue laws came out of a concept really of much of what we understand about the Sabbath. God creates in six days and He rests on the Sabbath. Moses writes the Ten Commandments and out of those ten, one of those is you shall observe the Sabbath and make that day holy. It is a holy day. The Jews take this not just for what is recorded as far as the Ten Commandments, they take it even further And they develop and adopt 637 different laws around the Ten Commandments, many of which circle around this idea of the Sabbath. I've told you in weeks past, in in the nation of Israel, many of the ancient cities were built around the concept of a Sabbath day's walk. What does that mean? You were not allowed to take too many steps on the Sabbath day because that was too much work. Remember the healing of, of the man with his bed at uh we think we talked about last week. Um, you could carry a man on his bed, right? Because it was an accessory to helping this man out. But for a man to carry his own bed was breaking the Sabbath because you were working. I was in Israel, and I was on Shabbat, which is Friday night or Sabbath, to Saturday night. And I was in a restaurant using my iPad. I was asked to turn it off because I was doing work, Pushing the buttons on my iPad. You could see that the culture, even today in a Jewish culture, is really, really heightened on this idea of Sabbath. Back then, most likely the number one law that you did not break was the Sabbath. It had all these stipulations and regulations around it. In fact, it carried one of the most uh, harshest penalties of breaking the Sabbath. So, look what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't want to ruffle any feathers, right? He deliberately does most of his miracles on what? On the Sabbath. Jesus is going to go after this idea that the Sabbath was not made for us to worship it, it was made for man and for us to be able to rest. And it was for us, it was a gift to us. He does that by, look, seven different times he heals on that day. Uh, The infirm man near near the pool of Bethsaida, we talked about. Casting of the unclean spirit in Capernaum where Jesus grows up. Cured Peter's mother-in-law. Healed a man with a withered hand. Opening the eyes, that's today. Healed the woman with the spirit of infirmity. And then cured a man with dropsy. All these on the Sabbath. Now friends, Jesus does not do stuff by accident. He wants to do this miracle on the Sabbath. And He wants to bring clarity to this culture. Sabbath was such a big deal, and he knew he was going to get opposition. How many of us today operate around a set of religious rules and don't really understand why we do them? Don't even understand why they exist, why we have them, and question that. Jesus is going to go right after that. In fact, at the end of the Old Testament, Prophet Malachi will say, I hate your religion. I'm paraphrasing. I hate your worship. I hate your sacrifices and your gifts. I hate all this tradition that you've done that means very little. Because I wanted the heart. And Jesus is going to go after this. And He's going to go after this idea of blindness. Now, this is a very important concept this morning before we dive in, because Jesus is going to obviously heal someone who's blind. But Jesus often does things, as He does with the woman at the well, He says, I can give you a water that you will never thirst. Well, obviously, he's at a well and he's talking about water and it relates to this woman drawing water. He's going to heal this blind man, but there's a deeper meaning and it really is more about spiritual blindness in the midst of trying to be right. And so there's two forms here of blindness that are culturally kind of a, a struggle right now. One is physical blindness. We would probably all agree today that to be blind would be a very hard disability in this culture today. Even though there are many provisions we have for people who are blind today, I just read that they have these new bionics that people that are blind from birth can receive an implant in the brain and can begin to see faint images. But to not see would be debilitating for most of us even today. But imagine back then. Physical blindness, suffering of a blind person, was made worse by the common belief that This affliction was due to sin. In other words, back then, if you were to have any kind of disability, especially blindness, the first question would be, who screwed up? Who was in sin? Who was not doing the right things? Your mom? Your dad? Both? Maybe you? Maybe all of you? Because there was a perception and understanding that was not of God, but that if you came out into life with any kind of disability, You must be in sin. Remember what they say to Job. Job, you must be in sin. You must have messed up somewhere, right? You must be wrong. And this is why God's punishing you. Friends, that's not always the case, and Jesus will talk about that. Because of their severe handicap, blind persons had little opportunity to earn a living. Most were beggars. Most people that were blind, you read in the ancient literature around history of Israel, would line certain gates. Ironically, one of the gates was called the beautiful gate. Peter and John in, in Acts chapter 3 run up to this gate, and they're blind and lame, and just all the different infirmities that people have at that time. But you would basically be reduced to begging. A blind person was even... Ineligible to become a priest, in Leviticus 22. The possibility of a blind person being mistreated was recognized, so it was forbidden by God. The law prohibited the giving of misleading directions. You've heard of jokes like that. You know, tell them it's this way and it's not. How cruel that is. God actually frowned upon that, and you could suffer harsh penalty for that. Uh, Or doing anything to cause a blind person to stumble. Now, I'm painting this picture because physical blindness back then was devastating, but even more devastating back then, and I believe even today, is what we would call spiritual blindness. And friends, we live in Green Bay, and we just see very clearly the whole scope of the world, don't we? In Green Bay, we have all the answers. We just see life very clearly. No smog, right? Um, Just great weather, Uh, probably the cloud of oppression that is over our culture is a religious blindness. This is not to say that liturgy and tradition are not bad, but when they begin to create a cloud and we don't understand why we do what we do, and the heartbeat of why we designed them, we find ourselves most likely spiritual blind. The Bible addresses this spiritual blindness as the great human problem. Israel was supposed to be God's servant but uh, was blind to the role God wanted them to fill. Called to be watchmen protecting the nation, they instead blindly preyed on people. In other words, your Old Testament talks about this great nation of Israel. God sets them apart. He has them make a tent where He will reside with them and connect with them. And what does the Scripture say? They become blind. Blind. They cannot see. The prophet Isaiah talks about that. Many of the judges that came to Israel said, you have missed the point. You're spiritually blind. In fact, it's it's relevant for us today. In the book of Revelation, John will talk about the warning to the seven churches. Remember that? In Revelation chapter 3, it says, one of the churches of Laodicea, a wealthy church, a church that actually had purple linen for clothes, beautiful clothing, and known for a medical salve to heal eyes. And it says in Revelations 3.17, you say I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. This is what the church would say back then. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. In other words, God will constantly use this metaphor to describe people who think they know, but have missed it. Have you ever missed Seeing something that you were supposed to see. Have you been ever been so uh, enamored and so consumed with something in your life that you've missed maybe a miracle or a moment or a person right in front of you? This is what Jesus is talking about in John chapter nine. This is the really a, a, a theme throughout the whole of Scripture. So now we see, as the Pharisees, we're going to see in John chapter nine, are the religious and the right religious of the time. If you were going to go find and inquire, I want to meet with a pastor. I want to meet with someone who knows the most about God and is the most knowledgeable. You would have met with a Pharisee. He says, as the Pharisees gained leadership, they became blind leaders of the blind. Jesus came to reverse this situation making clear who had spiritual sight and who was spiritually blind. Jesus is going to right the wrong that's going on. He is going to bring clarity to the blindness that is going on. Now, I picked up some interesting reading this week, and I did because I wanted to research why are we so enabled with being right? In John chapter 9, these Pharisees are going to be so caught up in being right with all the rules that they're going to miss the miracle right in front of them. What is it about us today that wants? to focus so much about being right. Anybody pick up maybe some stuff this week in our, in our political culture? Prop 8, Facebook starts flying about what's the right way and what's the right position. Our culture is enamored about being right. And I think a big question is, why are we motivated this way? What is it about us that has such a passion about being right? Picked up a book by Catherine Schultz. Or Scholes. And it's it's a book called Being Wrong. The Adventures in the Margin of Error. In fact, one of her bylines or taglines is, everything you think about being wrong is wrong. You like that, don't you? There's a lot of freedom in that. And she talks about this is ridiculous that we think we are always right or we always feel the pressure have to always be right. She says, we learn very early in life and in school and at home, that making mistakes or being wrong means there's something wrong with us. That we're not smart enough or good enough. Nobody's ever felt that in this room, right? Come on, how many of you felt the pressure you have to always be right? Am I the only one? Just a few of you? Yeah, just a few of you? It's this pressure that you have to have the right answer or be positioned exactly right. Religion puts a fear in us, and focuses us on this. Now this morning, I'm not talking about black and white, where truth, the Scripture calls us to think rightly about God. But I'm going to call you a little bit differently to think about this text, this passage of Scripture, because you're going to find a different motivation. And that motivation is these Pharisees are so caught up in being right, they miss what's right in front of them, in the middle. She talks about, Catherine does, it says, our attachment to being right leads to treating others who disagree with us very badly. Don't we see this? So we see you're at the restaurant, or you're at home, or you're having coffee, and a political conversation begins, right? And so there's this this awkward moment where you disagree. And it's this tension of what to do. What do we do with one another? We're on the opposite ends of the spectrum. Should we no longer be friends? Should we cut this off? Because you obviously don't think rightly about this as probably each other think. In our culture, and especially in North America, and we do a very bad job at this idea of trying to find a space where we can disagree. Catherine talks about when this happens, we start to have what's called error blindness. Now, I don't believe she knows God, and her book necessarily is not a Christian book. I thought this was interesting. She even sees that when we focus so much on that sign over there, on being right, the measure, the measuring stick, if that was one end of the spectrum of being right, when we focus so much on that, we start to have this error blindness as if we can't be wrong. When that happens, we start to make one of three, or a multiple of three, assumptions about people. One, we start to probably think people are ignorant. Oh, they just they are so uninformed. They just don't know. They're just not, you know, they're too young. They don't have it all together. Or, even harsher, the assumption might be they're stupid. That's a stupid thought that they have. You guys have heard this, right? If not, you've heard it. Go to your Facebook posts, you know. They're all over. And it's, it's this idea that this person couldn't be wrong, so they must be ignorant. They must be stupid. The third is even worse. They're probably evil. It's interesting this week, watching the Supreme Court make their decisions. And just the flurry of everybody deciding what is right and wrong. You know, I don't think God in His kingdom is worried too much about what our president and Supreme Court are going to do. Because in the authority and the supremacy of who God is, that means very little. If anything. It's interesting how we almost want to position ourselves and maybe we miss the very image, the very perspective God wants us to have. And this is the setting and the context for John chapter 9. All that to get us in the text this morning of John chapter 9. So uh, we have 14 minutes to do that. Here we go. Uh, Actually, wait, I'm not done yet. Um, Our love of being right. See, I was wrong, and I'm not afraid of being wrong. I'm wrong a lot. Ask my wife. so one extreme is being right, but our love of being right is best understood as our fear of being wrong. That means the opposite of this pressure to be right is what? I'm so fearful of being wrong, I do nothing. These are the vanilla people. What do you think? I don't know. You know, it's I think it's a lot of men in our culture today that are afraid to lead and be men and so they kind of just play the middle. Play the middle of the road and don't ruffle any feathers. This is what's going on and it's this idea of being safe. I'm so fearful of being wrong, I'm going to be safe. Uh, A definition that I saw online, it's a real statement, a real phrase, passive safety. It's the practice of taking measures to reduce the consequences of accidents as opposed to attempting to avoid them altogether. It's this idea I'm going to just create this world where I don't have to feel pain. And couldn't we just be honest that we don't grow? In any of these two extremes, we don't grow in a relationship with God this way of thinking we're all right or we're going to be safe. We don't grow in relationships with people. If we were to treat people on these extremes, how do we ever grow? How does a marriage ever grow on these two extremes? Marriages work really well when both think they're right, right? They really go smoothly. Marriages at least maybe look really good if they're both being safe, but they're probably a dead, boring, lifeless marriage. There's something about the middle, and that's what John is going to address in John chapter 9. Okay, so here we go. So as he went along, that means Jesus, he saw a blind man from birth. Remember, from birth. His disciples asked him a very fair question. Rabbi, they're saying, Jesus, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he was born blind. Obvious question for the culture of the time. Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. But this happens so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Push pause for one moment. Sometimes God, I believe, allows you to go through physical disability, hardship, pain. Not because you're wrong, but because He wants to glorify Himself In you. He wants to get the glory. He wants to get the credit. And friends, there is is nothing new under the sun. Sometimes I think we feel like woe is us because look what's happening to us. In the scope of history, listen, there's been many more before you that have gone through much worse. Maybe God is choosing you to glorify Himself through you. Jesus is saying, this man is blind because I'm about to just unveil something that's gonna blow your mind he says as long as it is day we must do the works of him who sent me night is coming when no one can work while I'm in the world I am the light of the world after saying this he spit on the ground those of you germaphobes are struggling he spits on the ground makes some mud with some saliva and puts it on the man's eyes sometimes you think of like Bible stories you know he did what that is disgusting that he just did that. And I don't know why he fully did it. Commentaries debate. He says, go, he told them, and wash in the pool of Siloam. It would have been a little bit of a walk, uh, but it means scent. And so the man went and washed and came home seeing. This is an amazing miracle. Amazing how fast too the Scripture just works through this miracle. Oh yeah, Jesus just heals a blind man. As a note, that didn't happen. You might have had an eye ailment. And Sab would have cleared up maybe an eye infection. But people born blind were never healed apart from a divine act. This is a powerful thing that Jesus does. His neighbors, this blind man's neighbors, and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. Already explaining away the miracle. Don't we do that? I find that when in dialogue with people, wait, wait, that couldn't have happened. There's a scientific reason for that. But he himself insisted, no, it's me. I'm the guy. How then were your eyes open? They asked. And this is the crowd of people. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to this pool at Siloam and wash, and so I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this guy? They asked him, where is this man? I don't know. Well, this is confusing for the crowd and already they're concerned about being right. So what do they have to do? There's been a law broken. You're not allowed to heal people on the Sabbath. That's working. They miss this amazing thing that unfolded, so they bring him to the Pharisees, the man who'd been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was the Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. They're putting this blind man kind of on trial. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and see. The story's shrinking. He's tired of telling it. Verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, this man's not from God. For he does not keep the Sabbath. How many times do we think we think really rightly about God and faith? And then someone walks in with a baseball cap in a church service, right? They must not think rightly about God because they have a baseball cap. Or, Or they live this certain way. Or they're doing this. And we kind of begin to... or They must be ignorant of the things of God. They must be stupid. Well, they must be evil. We start to get this error blindness. They're beginning to get it. So the Pharisees say, "This man's not from God. He does not keep the Sabbath Sabbath." And this man says, "I don't know." He doesn't know." Others ask, then, how can a sinner perform such signs?" So they were divided. They said, "Wait a second. How do sinners pull off this kind of miracle? So then it says that they turned again to the blind man. These Pharisees are concerned. What have you to say about him? It uh, it was your eyes he opened, the man replied. He is a prophet. So they want to know, what are you saying he is? Is this a magician? Was this somebody who just has a trick up his sleeves? And interesting about these Pharisees, they're nervous about saying things right. They want everybody else to say it. They don't know what to call him says, the man replies, he's a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight. They go back to this, you must not have been blind. This couldn't have happened. His sight until they sent for the man's parents. They go, we're going to find your mom and dad. They bring him in. Is this your son? Isn't that a great question? Like what is he just pull off somebody off the street? Is this your son? They ask, is this the one that you say was born blind? How is it that he now can see? Here's his parents' response. We know that he's our son. The parents answered, we know that he was born blind. But how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents are so concerned about what? Being wrong. That they say, we're going to be safe. Ask him. Why is this important? If you face the Pharisees and were wrong and in some way overstepped your bounds, you could be thrown out of synagogue. Now some of you think, no big deal. Go to the next synagogue down the street. Nope, you can't do that. It's not like here in our culture where if you don't like community church, you can go to a church down the street. Not a problem. Back then, if you were cast out of the synagogue, you were cast out as a Jew from that system. You could no longer be in the right standing with God and the rabbis and the Pharisees. You were thrown out. It was, so sh- it was a social outcast kind of situation. And so his parents said because they were afraid, they said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledges that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That is why his parents said he asked him. He's of age. The second time, they summon the man. They get the man again. They're baffled. They ask him the question, or they say to him, give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. Maybe one of the best verses in the entire Bible. His reply, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. I love that proclamation of not knowing. I don't know. Yet he gives an answer, so he's not claiming to be right, yet he's not going to be safe. He says, I don't know, but one thing I do know. I was blind and now I see. How many times do we focus so much on the extremes of life about being right or fearful of being wrong that we miss the very miracle in the middle? The very thing the Messiah is calling for, and that is relationship. And says they asked him, he said, then they asked him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he's like, Really? Again? I've told you already. And you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? And listen to this jab. And he knows. This blind man has gone from beggar to standing in front of the most religious people of that time. And he's going toe to toe with them. Do you want to become one of His disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him. You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now isn't that remarkable? You don't know where he comes from, yet he opens my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. This is what they would teach. This is their teaching. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man who is born blind. It's never been done. If this man were not born of God, he could do nothing. He calls out the error blindness of these top religious officials that are so dead set on being right that they're blind. How often do we find ourselves as Christians or in religion trying to so position ourselves as being right? That God never called us to be right because we're not right. That's why Jesus dies on a cross. Because we're not right. And we are not right often. Amen to that? Anybody? Yeah. You're not. And any religion set up that you have to live perfectly, measured by everything you do, doesn't need grace and doesn't need faith and trust in Christ. And when that happens, friends, It is not centered on the Gospel, and that is Jesus Himself. Because it minimizes why He died and rose again. These Pharisees have missed something so powerful right in front of them. To this, they replied, you were steeped in sin. No longer you just sinned once or your mom and dad sinned or a couple of you sinned. You swim in a pool of evil, dark, black sin. They're just going to make, He is evil. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus then hears that he was thrown out of the synagogue. And when he finds him, he says, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Recognize that this blind man doesn't know who Jesus is. He's never seen him. He walked with mud on his eyes to the pool. He says, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked, Tell me so that I might believe. Jesus says, you have now seen Him. In fact, He is the one speaking. Isn't this interesting? John shows us that it takes belief before sight comes. How often have I been put in front of people to say, give them all the facts so they can see it clear. Give them all the right things to do and so that they're not wrong. And Lay out all the facts so that they can finally see. And I have never seen that unfold. The nature of the Gospel of Christ is about belief when we fully don't know. I don't know who he is, he says. I was blind and now I see. He finishes up, and the man said, Lord, I believe. And and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see, those who see will become blind. And those who will see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what are we blind to? I want you to pay attention to this last phrase. Jesus says if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Let me illustrate just very practically what Jesus is trying to say. If I were to take one of you and say I want you to, I'm going to blindfold you and I put you at the end of the room and I want you to walk across in front of all of us the best you can. Blindfolded, most of us would probably laugh and have some, you know, Chuckles about just the struggle. But we would not put guilt or blame on Him. Why? Because He's blindfolded. It's expected. Jesus is saying those people who claim and understand that they're blind and come to Him understanding where they're at are not going to have to carry guilt. He says those people though that are not blindfolded, if I were to put another person back there and they're not blindfolded, and they were to walk across and stumble... We're going, like, what's wrong with you? You're guilty because you can see very clearly. Use your eyes. Some of you this morning has been so focused on being right about everything. Being right about your faith. Being right about all that. And I'm not saying this morning that you shouldn't think rightly about God, but let me illustrate just quickly. You focus so much about being right Or you're so fearful of being wrong, you miss the very thing that the Bible teaches about God. That He offered a gift. A miracle in the middle. And that was calling you to have relationship with Him. So it doesn't mean I act ignorant and I don't know the things of God. It means when I pick up my Bible, it's not so that I'm right in front of the world. It's so that I am in relationship with this one who helped me see that I long to please Him, the Father, Son, and Spirit in heaven? These are the ones I want to. I want to please Him. That's why I read, not so that I have all the right answers, and I'm not going to be fearful of being wrong so much that I just play it safe. But I'm going to love Him publicly. Th- this passage calls us, I believe, to two different declarations. We talked about declarations last week. The first declaration is that maybe you've been focusing so much on the extremes, you've missed the miracle that Jesus offers you to believe in Him and have a relationship with Him, and you miss. As This morning as we go to communion, your call is going to be as you go back to the table, is to say, what are you seeing? Is your faith and your pursuit of God so focused on being right that you've missed what's happening right in front of you? But it's also a second cry. And that second cry out, or that declaration, is that have you missed that even with people? You see, God says in the Great Command, it says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, but others as yourself. And he says, that we're to love others this way. And when you focus so much on being right or being so safe, you miss having relationship. I've heard people that say they have nobody connected to here. Have you risked yourself? And there's a miracle right there in the middle, and that is being with people and connected. This morning, as the team comes up, and guys, could you take down... I can't forward the slide. Uh, I, I want you to think about This question this morning. What do you see? The Pharisees saw religion and they saw Jesus wasn't doing it all right. The parents saw that they had to be safe and couldn't say anything. The blind man, the beggar, the one with the most disability, had the most clarity, didn't he? because he saw the miracle right in front of him. What do you see this morning? In your own faith? And in your own relationships with others? As you go to communion today, I'm going to ask you to think about that, but then we're going to ask you to get into groups. Oh, you're killing me, Troy. <laughs> i got to meet people here? can I be safe? No. That's why we're in the middle. And we want you to gather together and begin to make a declaration of Seeing the miracle in the middle that God has offered you, not only His Son, but the people right next to you. Don't miss that. Father, as we go to the table this morning, might we be reminded of your grace and not miss the miracle and the message and your Messiah right in the middle. Give us clarity, Father. Help us be able to see. In Jesus' name, amen.